Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's pop quiz time. Here's the question. Can you name the seven deadly sins? And while you're thinking, here's another question. Where did that list come from? The Bible, of course, has the Ten Commandments, which has some overlaps with the seven deadly sins. But we're talking about seven here, not ten. So who dreamed up this list? Well, credit goes to an inventive Italian fellow, a pope, actually, who became a saint, Gregory the Great. He realized 10 is kind of a big number of things for people to keep straight, and this was later confirmed by scientific evidence. Hence a list that has shaped culture for centuries, as Morgan Freeman discovers in the movie Seven, where he's a detective tracking a series of murders based on these sins. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. So just to recap, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Jack Lewis is a neuroscientist and the author of the new book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. He's not religious, but he kind of thinks, in the case of the seven deadly sins, religion got it right. Whereas religions would talk about an excess of those seven urges leading to uh, hell rather than heaven, I, as a neuroscientist, think of it more in terms of uh, whether it makes a hell or heaven of life on earth. Hmm. Because all of them in excess are essentially antisocial behaviors and will lead a person to be shunned by others in their lives. And it's well known from science. Various publications have come out in in the last few years showing that social isolation is very strongly linked to poorer health and early death through cardiovascular disease and cancers and also uh, various psychiatric illnesses such as psychosis and uh, depression. And so therefore, these seven deadly sins, as they were called back in the day, and I think of them as sort of urges, um, in excess lead us into social isolation, which literally is deadly. I think that's so interesting to like hone in on that the the potential problem with these seven behaviors beyond potentially if you you know believe in hell the fact that you might go to hell um, but beyond that um, it's the shunning uh, you know other people shunning you that doing these things will lead people to say I don't want to hang out with you or there's something wrong with you I don't like what you've done yeah. Exactly. And if you go through them one by one, like sloth, we humans throughout history and also in the present day um, have been reliant on one another. And so if someone's lazy and not pulling their weight, not doing their fair share of the work, then why should they benefit from an equal division of the bounty that results from that work? If someone thinks they're the center of the universe, they're very prideful and narcissistic, if they treat everyone else as if they are second-class citizens compared to themselves, why in the world would you reciprocate and, and try and share evenly with them? So, you know, we humans are an intensely social species. We're super reliant on one another's cooperation. And if we go too far in these antisocial behaviors, then other people will withhold their cooperation and and basically be like, stuff you. If if that's how you feel (laughs) about things, then 
Off you go. See how you get on on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked before about these two lists, right? The seven deadly sins and the Ten Commandments. Why did you write about the seven deadly sins and not about the Ten Commandments? Um, well, it was because of the number seven. So as you as you alluded to in the introduction, mm-hmm. uh, there is a nice little piece of science. George A. Miller from Princeton University published it in 1956. And it was about the magic number seven plus or minus two. That was the title of the paper. And amongst us scientists, that's vaguely humorous. But basically the (laughs) idea is that the capacity, the limit of working memory, uh, back then at least, was seven items plus or minus two. So the average person could remember between five and nine items of information. So on average, seven items we can hold in mind simultaneously for long enough to perform some kind of mental operation with them. And so in this case, it's looking at your conduct and and a behavior that you're perhaps thinking of of acting upon or an urge you're thinking of acting upon. You think, is this right or wrong? You can quickly run through those uh, list of the seven cardinal vices or deadly sins. And then, you know, that's a nice sort of rule of thumb to guide you on to the straight and narrow as opposed to in the abyss, so to speak. The other reason was that as a neuroscientist who was raised an atheist, um, I still nonetheless sang a lot of hymns at school. Uh, because I went to a Church of England primary school and secondary school, or high school, as you'd call it in the States. Um, and so every morning we sang an assembly. And I realized that, you know, when I, by the time I got to adulthood, I'd essentially sort of soaked up the Christian moral framework. And I was living my life according to it, despite not actually believing in God or heaven or hell. And, and I feel that my life was, was better off from that. That led to the idea that religions have been studying human behavior for millennia. Science has only got onto the scene in the last few decades. Because mm-hmm. imagining a world without any moral guidance, or, or at least prolific moral guidance that everyone has access to, um, w- would lead to a worse case scenario than uh, an, you know, an incredibly um, strict totalitarian theocracy. Like it, it's almost like no moral framework, and I feel like um, things would would fall into disrepair in terms of communities and so forth. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jack Lewis. He's a neuroscientist and author of the book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. So let's talk about one of the sins here, uh, pride, which we've touched on. Um, A couple of years ago, I talked to a professor at the University of British Columbia named Jessica Tracy, and she wrote a whole book about pride. And she talked about how sort of paradoxically it can be a really good thing for you. So, you know, it can motivate people to be good parents, to be good students, whatever. Um, But she also said it's got this dark side, uh, which she calls hubristic pride. So uh, here she is talking about that. So our research shows that people who tend to feel this kind of hubristic pride have problematic friendships, right? They, they have trouble making friends and keeping friends because really what they value more is boosting themselves up at the expense of their friends. So they'll put others down to feel good about themselves. They'll behave aggressively to try to get power and control. And so the result of that is behaviors that can be really destructive, like cheating and lying. Jack Lewis, um, pride is one of those really interesting things that's not sort of an it's not an unalloyed, like, bad thing. It, it, it has these two sides. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, how often do, do, do we hear kids being told, you should take pride in your work. Exactly. You, know, you shouldn't do exactly. such a slapdash job. You should take pride. But there's a difference between feeling pride and showing pride. Because if people express their pride in public, then they're accused of arrogance. They're accused of being conceited and full of themselves and thinking they're the center of the universe. So, yes, it's definitely a double-edged sword. And for me, having read a little bit of the sort of historical antecedents, uh, from the religious text of what it, what is it about pride that's so bad as to make it not just a sin, but a queen of all the sins, according to right. Pope Gregory the Great. Exactly. Um, it was his and, least and, favorite. Of all the things he didn't like, that was the worst. Exactly. Unlike St. Paul, who felt that it was greed that was the root of all evil. And so um, on this pride front, the, the most obvious thing that for me to reach towards in terms of academic literature that could reveal something interesting about what what religions call pride, in scientific terminology, I think it's closest to narcissism. Hmm. There's a sort of uh, everyday interpretation of what narcissism means, and there's the actual kind of psychological phenomenon of narcissism, which has several different facets. So, for example, narcissists tend to be extremely vain. They tend to be exhibitionistic. They, they are constantly trying to uh, draw attention to themselves and uh, essentially elicit flattery of some description. They feel they're an authority on all things, uh, even against very stark evidence of the contrary um, sometimes. They feel they are entirely self-reliant. They don't need other people. Um, and essentially they act like they are the center of the universe. They are the most important thing, which, of course, remember, all children start out that way. Right, right, if you look right. at the neuroscience of what goes on in people's brains uh, who score high on the MPI test, the high in narcissism compared to those low in the general population, it, it's quite revealing. Interesting. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk about two sins that um, in some ways to me are kind of related, um, lust and greed. Like one is sort of sexual, one is financial maybe, but they both have this kind of desire, right, involved for more. Do you think that making lust and greed sins, like putting them on this list, did anything? Did it help curb them at all? <laughs> Doesn't feel like um, it, but just checking. There's another similarity in that Greed is the desire to have more no matter how much you already have. Right, right. And the main problem with lust is infidelity. And so that that's kind of like, you know, you, you can have a good thing going on with your existing relationship and you just want more and more mm -hmm. and more. Um, and, and I always try to focus the lust question from a science perspective on the fact that lust is, is one of three drives, each of which serve a slightly different purpose in a slightly different way and are driven by very much overlap lapping brain circuitry, but also there are certain kind of brain chemicals involved, you know, more important for one or other. And those three are lust, romantic love, and long-term bonding. And it's like a relay race. Um, so whilst lust is, is, is quite indiscriminate, when lust is carried out in the direction of someone um, that, you're in, uh, that, you, that you're in love with, you're in, romantically in love with them, and you're obsessed about them, you're thinking about them all the time, you can't sleep, and you don't feel right unless you're with them, you know, um, that lust, you, fall, you tend to fall in love with someone who's considered to be better than all of the other options available, you know? So it, it, whereas lust, as anyone knows, <laughs> who's, um, you know, been in a bar late at night when uh, people are perhaps a little drunk and, and a little lusty, that, that, you know, people will 
tend to uh, you know not be so discerning in their choice of who they <laughs> act on that <laughs> on that urge with. Um, but but you know in in the sort of the original use utility of these three functions is that um, if you're carrying out your lust with the person that you love, when it wears off after, you know, no matter what the songs and the novels and the movies say, a love that lasts forever, the really intoxicating phase of romantic love lasts for six to 18 months. And then that can hand on to long-term bonding. And, and love serves the purpose of sort of synchronizing your lives with that person you love so that then when it mellows down into um, a sort of more mellow commitment phase, you can then uh, share the burden, and it is a burden, I think most parents would agree, of, of raising children together and, and, mm. and taking turns um, and cooperating in that regard. Now, the one thing I think really confuses people is that that sex drive remains indiscriminate. And so you will still, you will often, we will all find ourselves find, being sexually aroused by people that aren't our chosen partner. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is the most natural thing in the world. Acting upon that lust on that sex urge is another matter because if you act on it with someone who's not your chosen partner then you've betrayed the trust in that relationship and then you can't be surprised when that person decides well maybe I'm not going to stick around and look after this person when they're old and gray you know and, and it's such a shame when people do that because there's this whole thing of oh but are we really monogamous or are we, are we polygamous well if you look at our closest non-human primate cousins the bonobos right. and the chimps we share around about 99% of our DNA with both chimps are quite monogamous uh, bonobos are quite polygamous and we're equally related to both of them so that argument over are humans polygamous or monogamous it's kind of up to you if you want the benefits of someone sticking with you uh, in the long run then go for monogamy if you don't care about dying alone well sure polygamy <laughs> is an option um, finally how do you think about sin differently now than you used to before you wrote this book well I have to say that in the past, especially when singing hymns in church, I thought that I, I kind of did throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I thought religion was outdated and broadly speaking, it, it had kind of out, outlived its best before date because science has brought a new understanding of where the world came from, uh, you know, what happens after we're after we die, I believe it's the same thing that happened before we're born, nothingness. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Not existing didn't bother anyone before they existed. So why <laughs> in the world would it bother them after they're dead? Uh, so anyway, I, but, but I've now, I now see religion differently. I see it as a repository of wisdom. And I, as a scientist, as an atheist scientist, no longer just reject it wholesale. I think it's important to go back through it and, and scrutinize it, be aware of the limits of mankind's knowledge back then um, and not hold it to fault for the factual inaccuracies, but to extract the wisdom from it and, you know, use that moving forward. Jack Lewis is a neuroscientist. He's the author of the book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. Jack, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you ain't gonna do me right, I might just do you in. Ain't it a sin? If you're wondering whether sin is on the rise in today's society, it turns out that narcissism, which Lewis talked about in relationship to pride, 
does seem to be climbing, according to folks who measure narcissism. We've got more about that on our website, innovationhub.org. <laughs> 